Well, it's already been such a wonderful morning around here. Haplin chose about three of my very favorite songs in a row, so I was a bunch of tears, so just wiping those as I come up here. And to see Hattie being dedicated and to be part of that is such an amazing sacrament that we get to be a part of together. And um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to open the word for us. My name is Melissa. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've spent any bit of time around here or certainly in other Christian church settings, you'll hear the word the lectionary used. And just a reminder of what the lectionary is, it's this set of readings that takes us as a church universal through the whole Bible in three years. And that cycle starts over every three years. And so today, the lectionary lands us in Matthew 5, particularly right in that passage there that Kelsey just read for us, the well-known and well-loved section about being salt and light. And we're certainly going to look at that passage. But we are also, because it's, it's just a little movement within this longer sermon that Jesus is giving, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at the salt and light passage, but also what comes before and what comes right after that. Because I'll let you in on a secret. Good preachers organize their sermons, and there's a flow to them. And Jesus, I think we can agree, is a pretty good preacher. Yeah? Yeah. So, there's probably a good sensible order and reason for how Jesus is setting up the sermon, particularly right here in the beginning of the sermon, which is where we start off in chapter 5. I actually was having dinner with Dean and Marcia uh, this week, and we were talking about the sermon coming up, and they said, well, since it's a sermon, you just could like read a chunk of it and call it good. I was like, that is fair. That is actually a good idea. And um, as I was trying to get ready for this and um, I, I am in my final month of employment here, and that's been emotional for me. I really did think that that would sure help me trying to prepare for this sermon. Um, but I'm really honored, as always, to get to dig into this scripture with you all. And so I would invite us to open our hearts in prayer as we seek the scripture together. So can you pray with me? God, this morning, I pray and I ask that you would use the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, and that you would receive that as an offering, and that you would receive that as an invitation to come and move among us. Move us that we may be moved. Fill us in the places that seem empty today. And unite us as one people in a way that only you can do. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, for several semesters, I have had this awesome fortune of getting to teach a basic theology class for the university next door. And one of the classes, for many different semesters, I actually co-taught with a really good friend of mine, a former pastor, an excellent theologian named Ron Benefiel. I mean, he ran Nazarene Theological Seminary. So it's really nice to co-teach a theological class with him. And one of our students one day asked us a question, and it's a question that if you're in professional Christian ministry, you're going to get this question about every three weeks, which is, so, like, what is heaven? It's a big, wow is right. That's a really big existential question to be asked. And I did what I am certain that any of you would do if you were asked that question and Ron Benefield's by your side. You would punt it to Ron. So I was like, hmm. And, like, I'd asked the question and was just waiting. And if you know Ron, he has this, like, 
he really should be like a, like a voiceover professional. He has this incredible calm voice. And he said, well, if heaven is where God dwells, then heaven is wherever God is. That is good, right? I have ripped that and used that over and over again. I love it. If heaven is where God dwells, if heaven is God's home, well, then heaven is wherever God is. It sounds simple, but that's a pr- profound thing to say. It's, it rings with all the power of Jesus' ministry and message. So let's think together about some of the things that Jesus said, some of the things Jesus has promised. Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age, that promise of being with. And then again, Jesus says in a different um, context, my father and I, we will come to them, we will come to you, and we will make our home with you. And then over and over again, we hear this theme from Jesus, remain in me as I remain in you. So just even looking at just a a tiny handful of those statements, it's got to be possible. In fact, it's available to us here on earth that heaven would be with us because we've been assured that God is most certainly with us. For where God is, heaven is there. And if God is here with us, well, then we get to reside with God in heaven here too. And if we think about this in terms of Jesus' actual life, Jesus is this living embodiment of God. And Jesus, in doing so, just by being, brings heaven to earth in who he is. Jesus, then, is heaven, walking around on dusty streets, getting dunked in water, eating fish, going fishing, laughing with friends, being out in the desert, sweating as he's getting tempted. This very earthly life of Jesus gets mixed equally with this very heavenly presence. And Jesus, as we read it in Matthew 4, just the chapter right before, Jesus begins his preaching ministry, and he starts, not surprisingly, with this statement, repent, confess, come to God in full honesty. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. And if we think about Jesus as being the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus himself, he's right there. He is near, as near as could be. And praise God, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, still is, still is as near as could be to us. And after Jesus makes that great proclamation, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near you. Jesus goes on to call his first disciples. They say yes, and they follow him. And then Jesus goes on to heal a few people. And after those initial moments of ministry, he then moves in to where we are at in chapter 5 and delivers this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So you'll see, if you open your Bible to chapter 5 or you open your app and scroll through, which I'll encourage you to do, Um, right here in the beginning of the sermon, you're going to see over and over again there are references to heaven. 
In the Beatitudes, that section that starts chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see that heaven is referred to as sort of like a gift that we all get to inherit. It's a promise that there's something much more powerful available to us than even the threat of death. And then a little bit later, if you look ahead at verse 13, in the salt and light passage that Kelsey read for us, we see heaven named again. But in this section, heaven is referenced more as the place where we might direct our praise because that's the place where God is. And then if you look a little bit farther ahead in verse 17, in that fulfillment of the law section, heaven in this context is referred to as sort of a social ordering based on a whole new set of laws, a flip sense of who's receiving honor and full entry into the presence of God. It's pretty clear in just these first 20 verses or so of this sermon that Jesus wants his hearers, both the ones right there with him at the time and us now, to think about heaven. Jesus wants us to hear about heaven in different ways so that it sinks in. And for his first major public proclamation of the gospel right here, he sets up his sermon quite deliberately. First, he blesses, which is such a beautiful movement. Just take a peek there at the Beatitudes. It's full of blessing. And he names that God's favor is on the groups that are listed there. God's favor rests on the poor in spirit, the people who are grieving and mourning, the meek, those who are desperately in need of some righteousness. God's favor is on the merciful and the pure those who are working hard to make peace, and God's favor is on those who are being persecuted for their beliefs. In this passage, Jesus is guaranteeing all of these groups and those who join with these groups that in this new kingdom, a whole different deep sense of fulfillment is possible, that God's presence is actually nearest to these groups. In this new kingdom, it's a place where there actually will be comfort, where it doesn't seem possible. Mercy absolutely will be granted, where everyone can be known as the children of God. These are true gifts. And I think it's very important as we read this section to not just read it as, well, these are the gifts for them, for the other, the one in that circumstance that seems so terrible. Thank goodness God's for them. These could be our gifts too, always, if we are willing and ready to get ourselves into places of meekness, places of true mourning, places of mercy. There's a Catholic priest in L.A. named Greg Boyle, Father Greg Boyle. I really, really recommend checking him out. If you've not heard of him, he's doing incredible work in inner-city L.A. And years ago, I heard him speak in an interview on the Beatitudes. And I've loved something that he said, and it stayed with me ever since. His quote is this, 
The more precise translation of blessed in the Beatitudes is, you're in the right place if. And I like that better because it turns out that the Beatitudes are not a spirituality, it's a geography. It tells you where to stand. It's like saying, you're in the right place if you're over here. I love that. So in a sense, here in the beginning of the sermon, Jesus is beginning with the geography lesson. Here, here are a few places I'd encourage you to go. Here are people I want you to pay attention to. Here are circumstances that I don't want to scare you away, but I want you to dive into them. Here, in these places with these people, whether that's you or someone else, here is where you are going to find the kingdom of heaven. And once Jesus establishes this as a basic orientation for anyone who's going to follow Jesus, this orientation of actively looking to go to the places where mercy and peace and justice are needed, well then, after Jesus establishes that, he moves us into that salt and light section to give us this very salty, shiny present. And here it is. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, I think for a very, very long time, I heard these words a particular way. It's a really familiar section of Scripture. And I heard these words as an invitation to do something, to do the kinds of things that would give the world a taste of who Christ is, or to find the dark places, get there, and then turn on my light of Christ when I'm there. And I'm not saying that an active sort of response to God is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But I am going to say that what Jesus is saying here in this passage about salt and light literally has nothing to do with action. It has nothing to do with your effort or my effort. Jesus, in this passage, is giving them an assurance, giving us an assurance of who we are. You have to catch this here, that Jesus is telling the people listening to him unequivocally, you are salt and you are light. This is a word about our identity. That the saltiness in us, the light that's in us, is Christ actually in us. It's unearned, and it's abundant. And Jesus' metaphors go on to punctuate this point. He says something like, throw out unsalty salt. But you and I both know that salt doesn't get unsalty. That's the whole point of this metaphor. It's such a good metaphor. I even looked it up. Like, is it possible to lose saltiness? It's not. It's a really strong bond. And it's kind of the same with the lamp. Another excellent metaphor, especially if we're thinking about the kind of lamps that are being used in the day that Jesus is speaking. This is not a you know, pull the switch and the light comes on. This is set an oil lamp, which is hard to do. So no one would go to the trouble of actually getting the oil lamp to light only to immediately cover it. That, that doesn't make sense. Jesus is trying to get us in a frame of mind here where we understand that we take our salty selves filled with Christ 
And then what we do is we let Christ radiate out of us. It is not actually a call to action. It's a call to being. So let's review. Jesus begins the sermon by calling us to pay attention in the Beatitudes to a whole new ethic, a whole new way of seeing the world. He tells us where to go in that section. Then he reminds us that wherever it is that we go, even to the most difficult and uncertain places, we will bear the light and be the flavor of Christ because of Christ. We can't help but bear it. It's God in us. It's heaven on earth in us. It's who we are. And then, once Jesus has established these basic premises that are so fundamental, these truths about what it is to pay attention and to be, then Jesus moves into talking about action. So when we look at verse 17, Jesus starts speaking about good deeds and good deeds that flow from us salty, bright creatures. And then Jesus tells us that the goodness of God shining through us is going to cause an active response in others, that they're going to turn to God in worship. Jesus also, in this section, is referencing the law, this set of lifestyle codes, active guidelines for exactly what we should do and what we shouldn't do. His speech here noticeably shifts to talking about the doing that flows out of our being. And he emphasizes in verse 20 the word righteousness. And the way that it's used here, the original Greek word dikaiousune, righteousness, captures the essence of things like integrity or justice or virtue. And he's asking for theirs or our integrity, justice, and virtue to actually outdo the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were the keepers, the protectors, the guardians of the law that had been, up until Jesus, the way to access God, to lead a holy life. And Jesus is doing something radical here. Clearly, he's not saying, imitate the Pharisees' righteousness and just be the best at it. He is talking about an entirely different system here when he's talking about righteousness. Recall, he's already set up, because he's a good preacher, he's already set up for them what righteousness means. One, he said, pay attention to where there's a need for mercy, justice, and patience, and go there. And two, wherever you go, you're inevitably taking me with you. This is the righteousness. This is the integrity and the virtue of the new law. This is the posture that we take as we go into all of the stuff of our lives. The very earthly kind of stuff that Jesus spends the rest of the sermon talking about. Then he starts to get into specific places we go and things we deal with as humans. Things like violence, being angry, being confronted with someone who's in need and feeling compelled to respond. Jesus talks in this sermon about prayer, specifically how do you pray through fasting. He talks about betrayal, anxiety, envy, judginess, how we trust in our leaders, and on and on and on. Jesus names all these everyday kinds of things, but he's offering, as he moves into these everyday kind of things, a whole new approach to holiness. 
In essence, he's saying, just open your eyes, pay attention. And let me transform the world around you through you. This is true freedom. And this is what Jesus is offering so clearly here in his sermon. And I I know that, and I believe it, and I stand by it, and yet, man, do I love laws. I love things to be super clear, and I love to set the laws, actually. So despite this wonderful new approach to holiness, we cling, don't we, (laughs) to our notions of justice or integrity or whatever that looks like, and then we don't question it again. We make positions and then we grip them because they probably made good sense for us in the past, but we build this rigid commitment to them from here on out. Our values and our ideals, even on behalf of those in need of mercy and justice, our values and our ideals become our idols when we stop paying real attention to what Jesus is saying at the beginning, paying attention to where Jesus wants us to go when we stop tapping into what God is asking of us, and when we forget who we are and instead put our identity in what we do. I want to remind you, remind me, we already are the salt and the light of the world. So let us not let the freedom that Christ gave us go and become a new legalism. You are walking around with heaven and heaven on earth in you. Let that heaven break forth and be willing to be surprised how it makes all earthly things, all people, and all places new.